I just, I could not understand how in a field where we are trained to talk about sex, abuse, trauma, neglect, and systems, we're not trained to talk about something that every single one of us and our clients is going to interact with. It just felt maddening. Today, we're talking about money and its effect on relationships, anxiety, mental health, families, and more. We've got financial therapist, Lindsay Brian Potvin, who's built a career on getting real about the mental health implications of finances. If you want to learn how to improve your relationship with money, and not from the perspective of just being told to save, you'll want to listen to today's Baggage Check. Welcome. Thank you for being here today. I'm Dr. Andrea Bonnier, and this is Baggage Check, mental health talk and advice, with new episodes every Tuesday and Friday. Baggage Check is not a show about luggage or travel. Incidentally, it is also not a show about the incredibly varied filmography of Henry Winkler. All right, let's get to it. Today, we're talking about money. I can already hear some of the therapists who listen cringing in their seats. And don't worry, I would probably be with you as well. My guest, Lindsay Brian Podvin, who has a background as a therapist and a financial expert and has combined the two into a much-needed role, will tell you first and foremost that as therapists, we don't talk about this stuff. And it's a pretty big failure, being that research is consistently saying that money worries and financial challenges and concerns about money in general are always among the biggest stressors for individuals and for families and for couples. And so why do therapists shy away from this so much? Well, it's awkward. We'll start with that. It feels almost too personal, which is kind of ironic for a field that has no problem talking about some of the deepest secrets that people carry. So I sat down with Lindsay and had a fantastic conversation about how to manage our money baggage. There's so much of it. We talked about everything from how your upbringing begins in terms of your views of money, money's effect on relationships, the role of gender stereotypes, how to improve communication about money, what a financial betrayal might mean, what our views about money represent about our values, and how to start facing our actual money habits and work with them rather than against them. Lindsay was such an insightful guest to talk to, and you can find more of her work online at Minds Money Balance. That's her handle in all kinds of social media, and I believe that's her website as well. I'm glad you're here to take a listen. Let's get started. So I'm really glad to have you, Lindsay, here today at Baggage Check. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm really happy to be here. I love talking about money and mental health. And anytime we can do it on a platform where we're talking about mental health, I think it's fantastic because so many people struggle with financial anxiety and stress and shame, but it's usually those conversations end up being relegated to the personal finance space. And I think it's so important to make sure that we're talking about them over in the mental health space too. So I'm really happy to be here. Absolutely. And I think I'll just come out with this right out. As a psychologist, I'm not always comfortable going into this realm with clients because I think it still holds the old taboos in certain Mm -hmm. ways. And it's so fascinating that the things that I will hear from clients are some of their 
deepest, most uncomfortable, most distressing stuff. And yet, sometimes the idea of when I help clients sort of think about taking control of their finances because it's such a thing on their mind, it's like, ooh, am I overstepping my bounds here? Maybe this is too intrusive. Because I think it is really difficult. So I'm so glad. And you really bring such a unique array of experience to the table combining these two things. It's not that common to have somebody who's got expertise to such an extent in both the mental health space and the financial space. Can you tell me a little bit about how that even became a thing for you, how you got started in this area? Sure, Andrea. So I did not plan on going into the money space at all. I had planned on going to grad school when I finally decided that that was the path I was going to take and really focus in on interpersonal practice and mental health. And so that's what I thought I was going to do. I have a lived experience with depression, anxiety, and an eating disorder. And as you can imagine, with a person with that cluster of diagnoses, my, my family also has a pretty good history of mental health stressors and conditions. And so I knew I wanted to go into that space. And pretty quickly in the nonprofit world, when I graduated, I, like many people, went into the nonprofit space. I got my first paycheck and I was earning less than what I did when I was a waitress. And it was this wave of guilt and embarrassment and shame and overwhelm that I experienced because I come from financial privilege and that my parents paid for my higher education. So I graduated with no student loan debt, which is pretty incredible for anyone in this country, but in particular, if you are finishing grad school. So I already knew I had this level up and was still struggling to make ends meet. And I was thinking, oh my gosh, I've I've wasted my parents' money. I have a leg up and yet I'm still struggling. I don't know who to turn to. I don't know who to talk to. And so I did what I think a lot of us do is, you know, this was over a decade ago when podcasts weren't really a thing. So I went to the library and checked out armfuls and armfuls of personal finance books. I'm like, that's what I know. I know school. I know how to study. I know how to figure things out. And a lot of these books gave me some of the, of the the practical tips that we hear all the time. Spend less than you earn. Make sure you're not, you know, going out to eat and you're not buying fancy shoes and fancy bags. But a lot of them were laced with a ton of personalized guilt and shame, as in mm. it's your fault you're in this place with money. You didn't work hard enough. You didn't save enough. You weren't prepared enough. These things that you are experiencing financially is all 100% because of your personal responsibility. And in particular, what that triggered for me was memories of struggling with my eating disorder. Um, As for many people who know who either have lived experience with an eating disorder or treat people with eating disorders, there's so much shame around Mm -hmm. food, right? A lot of food is bad or is off limits or comes with a bunch of guilt. And a lot of binging and purging, which was the cycle that I was in, comes with, if I eat this particular thing, I might as well eat as much of it as possible because I've already engaged in being a bad person. Mm -hmm. And so it triggered me in ways that I just did not expect when I was trying to improve my financial wellness. So that was like part of my lived experience. And 
I was also frustrated, Andrea, because I was like, I'm not going out to eat. I'm not buying fancy shoes. Like I am literally living paycheck to paycheck. Sure. I can, you know, meal prep a little bit better, but it wasn't like I was doing anything quote unquote irresponsible. Um, so it took a few years for me to kind of put all of those puzzle pieces together. So the breadcrumbs were kind of laid early. Fast forward a few years later, I went and got a better paying job still in the same field. And what was interesting was that I hadn't mentioned was that the depression and anxiety that I previously had really well managed. I was in a good regimen. I was feeling really confident. I could manage my stress. Um, It really backslid during that time when I was being underpaid. And not only did my depression and anxiety symptoms flare, but I also developed insomnia, which I never had had before. And for somebody who had never experienced insomnia before, that threw an entire new wrench into my mental health and my physical health, right? When you're not sleeping well, your ability to cope with stressors and the coping skills that I usually use, they just weren't as sticky is is the way that I would put it. They just didn't work the way they used to. And on top of that, I was getting sick all the time. I was getting colds, I was getting flus, um, and I was doing what a lot of us do. I was taking a bunch of DayQuil and kind of powering through. So fast forward, I, I get a better paying job my health and my mental health start to improve. And I quite literally have not changed anything about my lifestyle. So I knew it was pretty intertwined with the income piece Um, because both jobs were stressful. And I think as therapists, we learn some pretty powerful ways to compartmentalize and set some emotional boundaries so that we can take care of ourselves. Um, So while some people might be like, well, maybe you're just in a really stressful job, maybe, and there there was still stress. So in this other job, I was seeing clients with anxiety and depression. And as you mentioned, they were bringing up money stuff. And my training as a social worker did not equip me to talk to them about the psychological side of money. It really only equipped me to say, hey, here is a resource. Let me help advocate for you so that you can get access to this resource or so that you can use this resource. But it did not give me the training to say, why do you think it might be hard for you to maintain a budget? Or what do you think is going on that's making it really challenging for you to negotiate a raise at work, right? Which Mm -hmm. is so bizarre because we do things like that all the time with our clients, right? We help them work on sleep hygiene. We help them work on self-esteem and self-confidence. But I felt like that was not in my lane and I didn't want to step outside of my scope of practice. So it was around that time that I started looking into how can I incorporate financial well-being with a mental health care practice while staying in my lane. I didn't want to become a financial planner. I didn't want to become an advisor. I really wanted to stay in the mental health space. And so that's Mm -hmm. when I found the Center for Financial Social Work and the Financial Therapy Association. Mm -hmm. Got certifications in both of those disciplines. And that allowed me to feel comfortable enough to say, hey, I can provide some information education at the intersection of the two while staying in my lane. And the way that I kind of operate that in my practice, now I'm in private practice as a financial therapist full-time, is that about 80% of our conversations around money hang out in the emotional, the psychological, what did your financial childhood look like? What were some of your first jobs? How do you communicate with your partner about money? And about 20% the literacy is the way that they like to use it, talking about what's coming in, what's going out, how are you saving for the future, kind of the nuts and bolts. But I'm never getting into investment advice or insurance sales or anything like that. Like I very much right. stay kind of in my lane. So so that's how I ended up to where I am today. And 
as you mentioned, this is in such high demand. I mean, I opened my practice in April of 2020. I was full by the oh, end. Oh, wow. What a time to yeah, open right? practice. Right? I, um, I was full by the end of the summer and had a wait list by the fall, right? Like it just mm -hmm. took no time at all because people were hungry for this information. They wanted to be treated in the mental health space. And there were so few of us and there still are so few of us. So if any therapists are listening, they're like, Ooh, I want to get specialized in that. Please do. <laughs> the, the handful of us who are yeah. specialized in it could use uh, some, some nice referrals. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Do you work with couples and individuals too? Because I know as we'll talk about, this is such a big topic for relationships. Do you tend to see just individuals or? Yeah, I see just individuals now. I saw couples for about a year, year and a half. And what I found was that I was often repeating myself um, between mm. couples. Um, so what I ended up doing was actually creating a course that is more psychoeducational for couples specifically. And so now I only see individuals in my practice. Got it. Oh, but that's great. But the, you have a course that's a resource for people that are in a relationship trying to figure this stuff out, trying to talk about this. There is so much in what you said that just resonates, I think, with so many people. I want to go back a little bit to this idea of the shame mm, and sure. the guilt about money and it was so interesting to me how you saw the parallels to your own lived experience with an eating disorder and with binge eating or the notion of what's bad or shameful or I've already screwed up a little bit, so now I might as well just throw everything out the window. Mm. And I think this is what really gets swept under the rug for so many people in terms of money because there is sort of a righteousness, I think, about it amongst the way it's talked about in our culture. I know in American culture, money and self-worth, money and judgment about what it means in terms of your intelligence, in terms of your passion, in terms of your motivation. There's so many stereotypes. There's so many implicit biases, I think, about what wealth means, what having a high-paying job means, all of these types of things. I mean, where do we even begin? Was it sort of like an aha moment for you where something clicked where you really saw how much need there was in your clients to be able to talk about money in a more open and vulnerable way and actually tackle this stuff? Or was it something gradually you noticed over time when you thought about your own experience? I mean, I'm imagining you, you know, with that first paycheck. And I think so many of us, especially in the nonprofit fields, in the mental health field, in the education field. We're like, wow, we've worked so hard to get here and we've gotten advanced degrees or we've done all of these things. And it's like, oh my goodness, I wish I was still waiting tables at Benihana. Mm. I know I had that experience. <laughs> I actually waited tables at Benihana while I was still in grad school. Mm -hmm. My first year, it was right down the street from my apartment. And I remember hiding in the kitchen there one time because a client came in with their family for a graduation dinner. And I was like, okay, I probably can't do this anymore. But man, the tips are certainly beating my stipend that I'm getting as a research and, and teaching assistant in graduate yeah. school. Yeah. But yeah, tell me more about that shame connection, how you started to really think think it through and, and what you tend to see in your clients about it. Is it something that comes up a lot for them mm, in their yeah. sessions? Obviously, they're banging down your door yeah. to work with you. But when it actually comes time to talk about it... How do we even begin to think about helping people overcome that shame element? 
So, so to the first question, did it hit me all at once? Was I all of a sudden like, yes, this is the thing I need to do? No, it was, it was slow and steady. But what I would say about noticing these patterns between our emotions and money was that it was incredibly consistent, (laughs) like between different clients from job to job, when I was talking to my colleagues and my peers and my friends, I mean, money stuff comes up all the time or came up then and it continues to come up now. So it was one of those things where I just kept, it kept hitting me in the face is the best way that I can say it. I'm like, man, I have taken trauma trainings. I've taken family reunification trainings. I have taken integrated behavioral health trainings. I have learned about so much and yet I haven't learned beep about money. And I just, Mm -hmm. I, could not understand how in a field where we are trained to talk about sex, abuse, trauma, neglect, and systems, we're not Mm -hmm. trained to talk about something that every single one of us and our clients is going to interact with. It just felt maddening to me. Um, And so it was kind of this slow accumulation over time of realizing that myself, my friends, my peers, my clients were struggling in their relationship with money. And I want to be clear that struggling in their relationship with money did not always mean they were struggling in the way that I had been pre like financially, right? Plenty of Mm -hmm. people struggle with money when they have it. Plenty of people struggle with money when they earn more than their parents did, or they're in a, in a relationship and all of a sudden they're out earning their partner and they weren't doing that. Or, you know, they have a kid that's getting ready to have their bot or bar mitzvah. And now they have to talk to them about what they're going to do with all that money that comes in, right? Plenty of people struggle with money, even when they have it. So that's the answer to the mm-hmm. first question, which is how did it kind of come up? And it was slowly over time, but it was just something I couldn't ignore. Yeah. For yeah. sure. And, and then think... remind me part two of the question. Like, <laughs> oh, shoot. <laughs> oh, I think I probably zoomed way past that. And just, I think, thinking about how to start to help people get over the shame, even in session of thinking about it. I mean, I'm just thinking of the logistics of it. It just probably, even for people who've come to you and chosen to have come to you, maybe there's still some reticence like, ooh, do I really show her that I make just this amount? And how does that fit into what her expectations were or how she's going to judge me? Or do I really show her that I've got X amount of credit card debt and now she's going to really think that I have a compulsive spending problem? Mm -hmm. I mean, at the outset, are people typically, you know, does it take a while for them to really sort of reveal stuff? And and how much do they need to reveal right away? Is it the type of thing where they're putting their proverbial cards on the table kind of early and, and numbers are coming up in the conversation? Or does it vary by person? How does that work? Yeah, I mean, it definitely varies by person. But what I will say in general for my clients is I find them to be some of the bravest clients that I've worked with because there is no roadmap for how to talk about money. So for them to opt in and say, hey, Lindsay, I want to work with you and I want to talk about my money anxiety, my financial shame, my worries, what meaning I've associated with money to me is incredibly powerful. And I'm so honored and humbled to be able to work with them. In terms of how it comes up and how much they show and tell, it really depends on the client. I will never say you need to give me statements of all your bank accounts so we can make a difference here. (laughs) Some of my clients come in with that. They're like, I've got, you know, 
I've got all my paperwork here. I'm ready to yeah. go. Whereas others, we talk in generalities. And I think that piece is more of a client by client basis. But what I tend to do with all of my clients is we start out going, what would it look like when therapy ends? How would you know mm -hmm. it's time to say goodbye to one another? What are the things that would have to change? And what I think is so interesting about my clients is they often tell me what they don't want, but they have a hard time articulating what they do want. Meaning mm -hmm. they'll say, I don't want to be anxious about money. I don't want to wake up in the middle of the night worried about my paycheck. I don't want to get tripped up when I talk to my partner. But when I say to them, great, well, what do you want? It's almost like they can't even imagine a world in which they aren't anxious or embarrassed about money. And so mm -hmm. I find that to be so fascinating. And I do a ton of validation in my work, probably more than I would in other arenas of therapy, because so many people are like th the main question that I could kind of summarize for all of my clients is like, am I doing this right? Is this allowed? Mm -hmm. Is this OK? And I'm not the permission giver at all, but they need a lot of validation to hear that so many other people struggle with similar questions and concerns and worries and fears and that they are not alone. And with money, we are making a lot of guesses about what our peers and neighbors and friends do financially based on what we can see, right? We can see somebody buy a new car and make a lot of assumptions about how they bought that. We don't know whether they've financed it over seven years, whether they already have a ton of debt and it doesn't bother them to add more. We don't know if they've inherited money and they're paying for it out front. We don't know if their job is giving them a monthly stipend for that vehicle, but we make an assumption based on the one thing that we can see. And then we judge ourselves and compare ourselves to that particular thing. Yes. Whereas, you know, we, we do that in every situation, right? We see a couple out and we're like, gosh, they're so lovely. We don't know if they're going home and screaming and yelling at each other. But with money, it's so much more in your face and silent at the same time. And I think it's maddening to a lot of people. That's such a good point. It's simultaneously what we see on the surface in such intensity. Oh, look at where this person went on vacation. Look at this new car that they bought. Oh, their house is way, way bigger than mine. We see all that. It's right there on the surface, how somebody dresses, what kind of car they drive. And yet there's this huge gap between what might be on the surface and what's really going on right. inside. Right. And I think it's so interesting that, that it's like that because it's ever present. And yet it's also such a secret somehow mm -hmm. simultaneously, simultaneously. Mm -hmm. Oh, my goodness. And I think, yeah, it's one of those things where it has an emotional aspect almost baked in because how we were raised. I mean, if you think of the messages of that, there are so many different ways that parents talk about money that just like or not talk about right. money. Right. And all of the emotional types of things that are imbued in there. Are there particular patterns that you tend to see or specific struggles of note that people have that you think maybe for the parents listening, mm -hmm. we could maybe keep that in mind? Because I know that's a whole nother genre, right? <laughs> How as a parent to talk to your kids about money. And do you tie chores to allowance or not? Do you just have to do chores and then you also get an allowance or you have to do separate chores for the allowance? Or how much do you save? Or do you give this much to charity? I mean, there's so much. But what types of things do you see come into the office that 
are kind of more clearly connected to maybe some childhood mm. stuff for folks. Yeah, there are so many things tied up in childhood. And one thing that I find fascinating, which again, shouldn't surprise us as mental health care practitioners, but I think stuns a lot of people, is that research has shown that most people, by the time they're about eight years old, have more or less made a decision about what they think money means, what they're allowed mm. to do with it, what their money story is. And so to your point earlier about what can parents do or not do, I tend to be in the camp of making sure that you're at a minimum narrating what you're doing financially. Just like if you were teaching a kid how to, I don't know, make a scrambled eggs, right? The first time mm -hmm. you do that, they're probably just sitting in a chair, you know, by your feet. And you're just saying, now I'm cracking eggs. Now I'm whisking them up. Now I'm heating up the pan and now I'm pouring them in. We want to be doing those same things with money because that's how kids learn. They learn by observation and they learn through feelings. As we know, emotions develop before that verbal language develops. So they pick up on the feelings that you are putting out when you're engaging with your money. And so a great thing to do is to literally say what it is that you're doing financially. So if you're at the grocery store and you're looking at two boxes of cereal, you can say, you know what, we're going to choose this one because it's priced at a price that feels better for us or that we can afford. Um, or, you know what, we're going to spend a little bit more on these eggs because it's important to us to eat organic and we're happy to spend that money on it. And people might be listening along and be like, are you kidding me? But just narrating what you do is going to be so helpful for your child's learning and development. Yes. I remember as a kid, my mom would narrate what she was doing at the bank. I'm the oldest of five. And so I remember her waiting in line, you know, back in the day when there was no e-checking and she'd be like, okay, I'm going to deposit this check in the bank account. And she would explain to me what a bank account was and where that money went. And she, as I got older, she would point out the rates on those letter boards. It would say like a CD and not like a music disc, like certificate of deposit. And she would say, see that percentage next to it. This is what it means. And so by that time I was probably 10, 11, but I can remember so clearly learning about money through that. It wasn't like she did a sit down and, um, you know, we, we had like a, a book about it. It was much more day-to-day -day narration. And of course she baked in some of her financial beliefs as well, right? So if I was babysitting, she would be like, okay, we have to put 80% of it into your checking account or into your savings account. And then you can have 20% of it to go buy shoes or whatever I was buying at the time. So there were some lessons there as well. But yeah. for parents, I, I would say to narrate. And then also don't feel like it has to be one and done. I kind of put money into the category of talking about things that are also challenging, such as, you know, maybe sex or religion and, and saying to your kid, you know, maybe in the middle of soccer practice, minivan pickup is not the time to talk about how much you make. But if a kid says, hey, you know, mom, dad, auntie, how much money do you make instead of being like, Shh, we don't talk about that. You could yeah. say, you know, why don't we talk about that when we get home? And then you can also elicit for them, what are they trying to get out of you? Depending on their age, they might want to know, are we safe? Are we secure? You know, I had a friend who had to move out of their apartment and that was really scary for me, right? We can elicit 
what are they trying to get at? Can we afford the field trip? Can we afford to take a vacation? Are we going to be okay? There might be some security fears there too that we can respond to with love and curiosity and empathy. And so I would say narrate. I would say treat it like any other kind of awkward conversation. You're going to have to have it more than once and you want to keep that door open. So when your child hits working age, let's say, and they come home with their first paycheck, you can sit down and explain to them, what money went where and why it's important to put certain money in the bank and, you know, all these different things. Oh, I love that. And I love how your mom did that. It was just there. It became a running storyline. It wasn't like, well, now that you're 13, we're going to sit down (laughs) and talk about the existence of money. I think so many conversations, as you pointed out, with, with child rearing are like that. You know, it reminds me of even teaching your kid to drive, which I've been through with one. And and the second one is almost here too. And it's like, people think, oh, you're going to sit down and teach your kid to drive. And it's like, no, 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 no. Your kid has been watching you drive for 15 years now. Right. And if you haven't been doing the habits that you want them to do, guess what? They've already picked up on it. And I love that idea of really starting the narration in a mindful way, because if you're not talking about money, they're making assumptions. They're picking up all those years mm-hmm. their own little guesses about what's going on or their own little vibes about, ooh, that seems weird and strange. And instead, take ownership of it. I love that. You know, talk about it openly and make it a whole conversation yeah. across years so that by the time you're actually in a situation where they have some autonomy with money, it's been baked in that they have certain values yeah. and such. So yeah. I really, really like that. Mm-hmm. And I think part of what's going on with money right now, of course, part of what I'm hearing in my clients who are obviously not seeking specifically financial therapy, but that keeps coming up is all of the recent turmoil. I mean, I cannot tell you <laughs> how many of my clients across disparate industries, disparate fields just in the past month alone have had some version of the potential of layoffs Mm -hmm. hanging over their Mm -hmm. head. Mm -hmm. Whether it's, oh, you should really take this voluntary separation agreement, or, oh, there might be layoffs, but maybe not my department, or, oh, I think I actually might be fired, but they're going to call it a layoff, or, you know, whatever it is. So much across tech, obviously, we've heard about across media, across different types of organizations, nonprofits, corporations, the whole nine yards. And I've really felt this increasing drumbeat of anxiety, even amongst clients where that was never something we even Mm -hmm. talked about. It's Mm -hmm. like now it's here and now I have to think about that. And so for clients or just people out there listening right now who are really finding money to be one of their top anxieties right now, and I think some of the research bears this out, people are mentioning it as one of their top stressors, where is a place to begin in terms of managing this anxiety? And sort of step one, you know, ultimately, if it's really bad, it sounds like seeing you or another financial therapist would be an excellent idea. But where is step one for people listening who are saying, yep, money is my number one stressor right now. There's uncertainty or I'm worried about banks. I'm worried about the crises and the financial potential collapse that might come. Where do you begin? Such a good question. And what I often think when people are anxious about where do I begin, I often start off with the basics, getting them helping to understand what's going on in my personal financial landscape. How much money is coming in? How much money am I spending each month? How much do I have saved? What are my plans if I were to be laid off? 
starting out with some of those basics can be really helpful. It can be really scary too. Um, What we don't often think about is how many of us really do live paycheck to paycheck. And that means Mm -hmm. they're waiting to pay bills until their paycheck comes in. So Mm -hmm. a lot of us are really kind of skating by. So first and foremost, I would say if anybody's feeling anxious about their financial stability or their job security, you're going to want to buffer an emergency fund. An emergency fund could also be called a life happens fund, a nest egg, whatever language you want to reframe it to so it feels more supportive for you. But that is having cash available in a safe place like an FDIC insured bank account that you can turn to and use in the event that you were laid off or in the event that you had an emergency and you weren't able to work. the, the general rule of thumb for emergency funds, there's been this number thrown around forever, which is like you need eight months of savings in an emergency fund. And that number is about 20 some odd years old that came off of this idea or it came off the study that said it took the average person about eight months to find work after they were laid off. Mm-hmm. So I often encourage people to think about what industry they're in, how true that would be for them. For example, like if you are a a nurse or a teacher right now, it's not going to take you eight months to find a new job if you were laid Mm -hmm. off, right? Because those are careers that are in high demand. But if you're in a field that is different, you might need more than that eight months. But figuring out kind of what are the financial landscape, what's my personal financial landscape, and what can I do to dial up some certainty and create my own financial safety net? The thing about the news and money news is that scare tactics work. We know that the red arrow pointing down, screaming that the financial sky is falling, turns people to turn to the news, to refresh their apps, to check in with their friends. It sells. It's been working for decades. And one thing I think is important, even with the recent shakeup over um, SVB um, and then, you know, one of the Swiss banks, everyone's worried about it. After two big events happened in the US, after the Great Depression, and then after the 2007-2008 recession, the government stepped in and put more scaffolding in place to better protect consumers. That means that if you have up to $250,000 in a bank or a credit union that is NCUA or FDIC insured, that money is guaranteed for you. Even if that bank quote unquote goes under, that $250,000 is safe. So we saw that play out very recently that people were able to not just get their 250 back, but they were able to get all of their money back. So that's one thing. And then after 2007, 2008, there have been more strict guidelines around how much people can borrow and more education around how compound interest works in the negative. Meaning prior to 2008, if you got a credit card statement, it was not clear how much you'd be paying in interest. But now when you get a credit card statement at the very top of your statement, it says, here's how much interest you would be paying if you only paid the minimum amount and how long it would take you to pay it off. For years, the credit card industry buried those numbers. It made it really hard to figure out how much am I actually spending. So there are some additional scaffolds in place that the government has put in place, but we know that those things change. I don't imagine either of those two things that I mentioned as examples will be rolled back, but know that there are some guardrails in place, but you also have a responsibility to create your own financial guardrails. And two things can be true at once, right? We can advocate for better banking policies to better protect us as consumers, and we can take actions on our end to better provide financial buffers for ourselves. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And actually getting to the point of facing it, I think that step one, that pre-step one can be really hard for folks. You know, I know that yeah. I have worked with people where literally it's like, well, I have an automatic payment set up to my credit card, but I haven't logged in to actually see what my balance is mm-hmm. in months because I'm scared. Mm-hmm. Or, you know what, I know that bill came and it's been sitting on a table and I haven't opened it because it brings such anxiety. And so I think one of the wonderful things it sounds like that you're able to offer as a financial therapist is that scaffolding emotionally to say, yep, you know, it's not just about, okay, well, let's look at your budget. It's about how do you actually bring yourself to get over the cognitive and behavioral and emotional aspects of that. And unfortunately, I think a lot of financial advisors probably can't really help with that or don't really help with that or don't know that they need to help with that because I'm imagining it's a scenario where a lot of people are like, all right, I got to get my finances in order and somebody recommended this financial person and they go. And in a worst case scenario, maybe their shame is made even worse. Absolutely. It's very boilerplate. Is that kind of what you see? I'm not asking you to bash financial (laughs) advisors by any stretch, but I'm guessing they just don't have the training or even just sort of the awareness about how deep some of this stuff goes emotionally. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that because to your point, it's not about bashing financial advisors or planners, but they're trained through the lens of how the numbers work. And so for them, they can populate all of these great spreadsheets and shoot out these documents and say, look, if you just did X, Y, and Z, your financial landscape would be completely different. Or if you keep this up, you're going to be in a world of trouble in 10 years. But what they sometimes forget to implement is that a perfect plan does not mean that somebody is going to take action. How many of us as therapists have been like, oh my gosh, I can see this road so clearly for you. If you keep this up, we're going to be in trouble. But we don't say to our client, first you do this, then you do this, then you dump them, then you move out, then you quit the job. Like We don't say that. We give our clients agency over the choices that they make. We may provide some information and some guidance (laughs) around what those choices might look like and explore with them some of those outcomes. But it's the same thing. Like if I were to go to a doctor and I was struggling, let's go back to my example of insomnia. And I was like, Hey, Hey doc, I I can't sleep. I'm really struggling. And they just said, well, too bad. Take Ambien. And that's your only choice. If I was maybe medication anxious or I wanted to try something else first, or I was really convinced that it was tied up with job stress, I would be totally put off versus if I go to the physician who says, Lindsay, here are about five different things we could try. Of these five things, which one feels best for you? Let's try that for a month. Come back in. We'll check in. We'll see how that goes. If it's working, here are some steps we can take. If it doesn't work, we've got four other options. How does that sound? Right. And financial advisors, they see the numbers. Those numbers are black and white. And for them, it's like the numbers don't lie. Right. So to go, I can imagine for them, it's hard to say your life could be so much easier if you just did this. So do it versus saying, here's what we could do. Here are a handful of things we could change of the things that you could change, which one feels best for you or which one feels the most daunting and giving them some agency around making those financial changes. I think what happens with so many financial planners is they come up with these brilliant, beautiful, maybe even three ring bound binders and they hand them to the clients thinking that the information Mm -hmm. is going to transform them. But as mental health clinicians, we know that information does not lead to change. Mm -hmm. We all, 
know, again, you sleep that we shouldn't be on our phones before bed. And yet most of us are still scrolling on our phones before bed, right? I'm thankful that the personal finance field is changing. It is morphing, but we know that most decisions, financially speaking, are not that black and white. Yes, the numbers don't lie, but neither do our emotions. And if that financial plan is daunting, overwhelming, and feels punitive, a person's just not going to take action on it. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And then they're going to even be more avoidant. Absolutely. They're they're going to be, it might actively backfire. Yeah. Because Mm -hmm. now, not only are they not going to take action on the plan that was proposed, but the shame over the fact that they're not taking action means they're not even going to talk about money anymore after all. And they're just going to dig themselves into a deeper hole, for instance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I imagine when you add another person to the mix, (laughs) because somebody's in a relationship, Mm -hmm. this is where... We see so many issues, too. And I'm thinking about the cliche even of how, you know, oh, what breaks up a marriage? Well, money issues are one of the top things. You know, everybody hears that. Everybody knows that. And it sounds like when you did see couples in your practice, there were trends that you saw over and over and over again to the point where you said, I need to make a course about this because because I'm repeating myself over and over and over again. So what are some of the common themes that you see? And I would love to get into eventually thinking about how to help empower couples to talk about this stuff and what can they do. But let's start with just the common types of dilemmas that you see among couples in terms of how money is affecting their relationship. Sure. So as you hinted, there's a course because I found myself saying almost identical things from session to session, which for people who are in partnerships, I hope that that provides some validation to you that you are not alone. So yes, it is true that statistics show consistently arguments about money are one of the leading causes of divorce and separation. But what does not meet the headlines is that couples who talk about money, not couples who fight about money, but couples who talk about money, report being happier than those that don't. And the hypothesis there is that to talk about money is vulnerable, it can be a bit scary, so it requires a level of trust and safety and connectedness and intimacy that talking about where you want to go for dinner just does not elicit for most couples. Yes. So there are a few things that I saw come up again and again. One was people having this idea that financial opposites are bad matches. I'm a saver, they're a spender, we just don't mesh. Versus figuring out what is the value underneath that person's choice or their behavior to save or spend. And usually once we could kind of sift underneath and figure out why they wanna save or why they wanna spend, we could hear some common themes and some common values that help the couple to get on the same page. So for example, a person who wants to save all of their money, they say saving money makes me feel safe, makes me feel secure, it gives me a sense of control. The person on the other side of the relationship says, I like spending money because nothing is guaranteed in this world, so I might as well spend it. That makes me feel happy. It feels very predictable. I feel very secure that when I go to the store and I hand over my credit card, I get exactly what I want. And so they're bringing up the same things of safety, security, and predictability, but they are choosing to honor those values in a very different way. So then the conversation does not 
then become, you need to spend more, you need to save less, but it becomes, how can we find space for collaboration here? So each of you can have your needs met. What does safety and security and predictability mean for you in your relationship? What are ways that we can do that outside of money? Does it mean you need to have more deep conversations? Does it mean that you need to be intimate more often? Like what are the things that are making it hard for you to nurture that safety and predictability piece in your relationship? So that's one thing that came up all the time was thinking that financial opposites are opposites in every way when in most cases there were shared values that the couple was getting their needs met in a different way. And then the other thing that often would come up with couples is just the communication. As we know, communicating about anything is pretty tricky in a couple. Um, but when it comes to money, that's where if you already had any sort of communication pattern that was a little bit rocky, it just became even more inflamed when you layered on money into that conversation because money is so layered with all of these emotions. So when you have conversations that are kind of those doorknob or drive-by moments, hey, babe, I maxed out the credit card. Sorry about that. Got to go to work. Like That just <laughs> is not going to be super well received. So helping couples with the, their communication patterns and building in time into their relationship to communicate about money on a regular cadence. It sounds so daunting, so overwhelming, and potentially so boring. But what I find is that couples who carve out that time to talk about money, it strengthens other areas of their relationship as well, right? They're able to yeah. start saying language like, hey, I hear that you want to talk about the bonus that I got at work. I don't have the capacity to do it right now, but I definitely want to have the conversation. Can we table it until Sunday night? Right. Being able to name what you need to validate what your partner's asking for and to be able to have space for those conversations is really powerful. So those are two of the most common things that I saw. Mm hmm. That's so important, really thinking about how, once again, what's on the surface in terms of, hey, we're opposites, that's not going to work, isn't the whole story by yeah. any stretch. Mm -hmm. And that there's that deeper narrative that needs to be explored, because it could be, as you pointed out, that two people who seemingly are opposites, their values are a lot more similar. And it's just a matter of figuring that out. Yeah. And, you know, I think so many times... This is something that people feel like is a done deal, right? It's like, oh, well, this person's always going to be this way or we're always going to fight about this because we're so different. And in reality, there's so much room to explore it. Mm -hmm. There's so much room. As you said, when you bring in communication about it, there's so much room to listen and understand and maybe compromise or create a new strategy mm. to go forward. Because yeah. I think that, again, it's that same sort of shame, yeah. you know, and then people fall in love and maybe there was still taboo about money <laughs> in the early days. And all of a sudden, you've got a couple who's practically, you know, serious. And yet, they haven't really talked about any of these things mm. yet. Yeah. And, or, you know, one thing I hear often is the potential for financial betrayal that is not even necessarily intentional, but it's mm -hmm. kind of a slippery slope. Well, you know, my wife didn't realize I still had this much in student loans and I kind of didn't tell her how much it snowballed. Or, you know, my partner has a secret shopping habit and in theory it's just their money because we each have some separate accounts, but I had no idea that she was blowing $2,000 every few months on this silly stuff. And I'm resentful because we could have put that $2,000 yep. towards something else. And 
How do you see financial betrayal, Mm. quote unquote, fitting into all of this? And how do you start to help people start to communicate about that? Such a good question. I want to go back to something you said that made me think about why money is so challenging in couples is that in our culture, we believe in love marriages, that love will conquer all. And it's very rare, at least in my line of work, where a couple has never had an inkling that something's up with their partner financially. (laughs) But they do this assumption that many of us do, which is once we get married or once we move in together, once we have a shared bank account, that will fix everything. And Mm -hmm. there's also this idea that somehow talking about money isn't romantic, it's taboo, it's gross, it's bad. But I think, again, talking about money can be one of the most romantic and most intimate things that we can do. So I just wanted to put that there. And then in terms of the betrayal, financial infidelity happens in most relationships. Depending on the study, we're talking 50 to 60% of the time, a person either endorses having financially betrayed their partner or being quote unquote betrayed by their partner. And I think there's a lot to unpack here. And one is that if we don't have discussions about what financial infidelity or betrayal is, everybody's going to define that differently, right? Just like if you're in a monogamous relationship, somebody might say, oh, you can't look at another person that's cheating, where somebody else is like, hey, as long as you didn't sleep with them, that's not cheating. But you have Mm -hmm. to have that conversation about what is okay and what's safe in your relationship and what isn't. And I think a lot of couples just skip over that step all together. And then they're like, how dare you? You totally betrayed me or you ruined my trust in you. But you never had that foundation or level setting conversation to begin with. So first and foremost, I think it's important to figure out what do we define as financially cheating? And how will we alert the other person if we're worried about it or either ourselves, quote unquote, cheating or about our partner um, cheating? And I think a, a lot of this reason for the financial infidelity is not necessarily malicious. Of course, there are people out there who are intentionally trying to harm their partner and are intentionally trying to hide things from their partner. But I often think that so many of the times when financial infidelity happens, it happens for one of two reasons. One is that we just don't give our partner enough autonomy anyway, meaning we put all this money together and we expect every single expense to be double checked by the other person. I think that's a really punitive way to live in in a romantic relationship. My partner and I each get a little bit of fun money each month that we can spend however we want. I can't judge them. They can't judge me. If I want to save it up for six months and then go treat myself to a spa weekend, I can do that. Um, And if they want to spend it every day on car parts, I I can't say anything because that's their money to do what they want with. So I think we have to treat each other like adults and give some sort of agency and autonomy, financially speaking. So one is that we expect everything just to be equal, which just doesn't happen. And we need to build in a little bit of autonomy and freedom financially. And then the other reason that I think a lot of this happens is that it kind of gets out of control and we don't know how to bring it up. So, oh, for example, I have this credit card. I have a $1,000 balance on it. I'm sure I can pay it down before that bill comes due, but oh, shoot, there's this one thing that I really want. I'm going to grab that too, but you know what? I'll return the other thing and it'll be okay, right? It kind of snowballs and gets out of control. And then to your point, to use those words, that guilt and shame and embarrassment kicks in of like, how is it possible that I as an adult got myself into this situation without taking into effect the way in which consumerism is 
baked into our society makes it really hard to not use consumerism as a coping skill. When yes. we shop, it's one of the most predictable things that we can do. It provides us with hits of serotonin, dopamine, oxytocin. Um, it feels incredibly good in our brains. And I'm not just talking from a person with a shopping addiction standpoint. I'm talking just in general. Every time you swipe your card or buy something, we get things that are really hard to get in other ways. Um, so it can become really challenging because as we've talked about, a lot of personal finance experts say, well, you just don't have the willpower or you're too dumb or you did this to yourself. Um, so I think a lot of people get into trouble where they had a $1,000 credit card bill and then it snowballs out of control and it becomes harder and harder to say to their partner, hey, I had $1,000 of debt when we got married. It's now 20 grand. I feel really embarrassed mm -hmm. and I don't know what to do about it. But they have that conversation when that it, when it hits that tipping point, when they can no longer prevent their partner from knowing they've got bill collectors calling, they've got notices coming in the mail, like they can't hide it anymore versus yeah. saying, hey, I've got $1,000. Let's get through this together. Let's figure out what happened. Such a good point about the slippery slope mm. just becoming almost all-encompassing. And of course, as you pointed out, with some of these credit card rates, it's really not unrealistic right. at all that 1000 turns into 20000 over the course of a few years of extra spending pretty easily right. as the interest right. racks up, too. I imagine there's a gender piece here mm -hmm. sometimes, too. And I know I see that come up assumptions that maybe we don't even think that we have, but then feel weird, mm. right? It's mm -hmm. like, I've worked with a lot of women in therapy who are like, I'm in a really progressive marriage with a, a man and, and we are so progressive in so many ways and we don't feel totally bogged down by gender roles in terms of how we share housework or how we share bills or maybe if there's children in the picture. I thought that I had this really egalitarian type of marriage, but now that I am making more money than him by a significant amount, something feels off. Or now I'm starting to really just be frustrated with my partner that they're not working as hard as I am in terms of this. I used to be fine with them being in a different industry and they're doing good for the world. But now that we're trying to pay for our kids' college, it's so frustrating that they don't make more money or somebody's health insurance isn't as good. And now I'm bearing the brunt of having to carry my partner on their health insurance because they've been laid off and all of this stuff that I think speaks in some ways towards these really ingrained ideas mm. about what it means to be a provider what it means to be wooed or to woo someone, you know, who picks up the check in a, in a heterosexual relationship in the beginning, all this baggage about gender. And of course, in same-sex relationships too, there can be plenty of baggage about mm -hmm. gender. What are some of the themes that you see there? It's a really good question. So first, I think it's important just to set the stage that as progressive as we think we are as a society, we haven't made many changes in the way in which men and women are socialized around money. As recently as 2017, studies have shown that the way that we talk to children about money differs wildly based on the gender that they present. So wow. girls are taught more about the importance of saving, about using coupons, about being thrifty, about being frugal. Those are the messages that are passed to them. And men are taught the importance, or boys rather, are taught the importance of being entrepreneurial. So going out and asking to mow your neighbor's lawn to make a little bit of extra money or taking risks and how important that is. And as we yeah. can imagine, that shows up later in adulthood, right? Women tend mm -hmm. to be relegated to the financial domains 
needs of the household. Where are we gonna buy groceries? What soccer camp are we sending the kids to? You know, what shoes are cheaper? When do things go on sale? Those are the things that kind of fall under the woman's domain and things that fall under the men's domain that may be really harmful are things like investing for the future or where our money is held. And men, it's not like they get more education about it, but they're kind of given this false um, confidence that they should just know what to do. So it can become this really harmful kind of thing that we put onto men to say, you should understand how money works, but we're never going to teach you how it works. You should just know. Oh, because yes. So I think that's really important to just put that out there first, that it's not just about these ideas, but it's also in the way that we are teaching children what they should or should not know about money. And then fast forward to now, there was a study that recently came out that in heterosexual relationships where the woman is the breadwinner, the male partner is more likely to cheat <laughs> and not cheat financially. But I remember yes. that data. Yeah. Yes, yes. So again, we can say all of these things, but our behaviors are very different. So I think it can be just really important to acknowledge what your biases are, to acknowledge what feels good and what doesn't. I have heard of a colleague who identifies themselves as being very progressive in a heterosexual relationship with the culture that they're from. Their husband always puts the credit card down, even though it's a shared card, that feels Mm. good and empowering for both of them to have him put the card down with his name on it, even though it's a shared account and even though it's a shared (laughs) card. And it's like, you know what? We, We also just have to acknowledge that sometimes there are going to be things that feel better for us and don't feel better for others. And we have to honor what feels good for us. And there's, you know, a whole other conversation that could be had about privilege and things like that. But I would say honor where you're at, have those tricky conversations. If you have to do a little bit of financial role play, so to speak, to make yourselves feel good about it, that's totally fine. You know, I'm, I'm not here to judge or say what you should or shouldn't do. These lessons are really hard to unlearn. And when we are told that women are supposed to be one way and men are supposed to be another way, it's really hard, even if you logically and intellectually disagree with it, for your entire self to get on board. Yeah, it comes full circle to that notion of communication and communication with yourself too about let me be honest about how I'm feeling here and really be curious about it. And if I'm carrying around these messages that in some ways are hurting me, let me be vulnerable enough to recognize and label them and then communicate with my partner about them. Because I think sometimes people are really caught by surprise by this stuff and they Mm -hmm. say, I don't want to be this way. I don't, you know, and then there's shame on top of that, right? Mm. There's shame Mm. that they feel this way or why shouldn't I be fine with my wife making more than me? What's wrong with me? And then it's like, okay, well, let's let's not add a layer of shame on top of it. Let's move through this by acknowledging it and starting to work through it. But Mm. adding shame on top of it really doesn't help in any way. Because I think, like you said, I mean, whether we're talking about how men are taught as boys or how women are taught as girls, They have run a gauntlet by the time they are adults or even teenagers, and they have gotten so many, so many cultural ideas that probably weren't right Mm -hmm. and that 
probably were biased or, you know, and that goes full circle too, to, yep. you know, your mom, your mom in the grocery store doing the, <laughs> doing the good work of just talking about this stuff and narrating it and educating it and making it not a vulnerable thing that, hey, we can talk about this stuff. It's not taboo. I'm not shushing you in the back of the minivan because you asked how much your uncle mm-hmm. makes and now I'm so embarrassed and we're never going to talk about money again, right? Mm-hmm. I just love all this because it ties in so beautifully to the larger mental health picture, yeah. which I think you must do in your work every day, mm-hmm. that it's about communication. It's about opening yourself up to insights and not being afraid. And and I'm just so grateful we've been mm-hmm. able to talk today. <laughs> and I think there are probably so many listeners who had no idea what financial therapy was, but now they know a place to begin if they're struggling with this type of stuff. So once again, where should listeners find you, Lindsay? Oh, thanks, Andrea. Uh, so my business is called Mind Money Balance. You can find me on YouTube, on Instagram, at my website. Everything is under the same handle. I have a few fun and free things that they might be interested in. One is a free quiz to learn more about your financial archetype, to learn more about your unique strengths and challenges when it comes to money. And that's at mindmoneybalance.com slash quiz. And if you want to ask me a question, I'm piloting a new ask me anything type of program or segment. So if you go to mindmoneybalance.com slash ask, A-S-K, you can submit a question for me that I might answer over on YouTube. So that's what I'm playing around with, but please come say hi. I have a book called The Financial Anxiety Solution that you can pick up wherever books are sold. And if you don't have um, a local bookstore that you like to shop from, or if you're feeling anxious financially, you could ask your library to buy a copy too. So that's another resource I love to offer. Wonderful. Well, if a question comes in about the panic of paying for three kids' uh, college <laughs> education, it most definitely did not come from me. Noted. I Noted. think it was and- Andrea someone. It wasn't actually. <laughs> well, thank you so much, yes. Lindsay. It's been such a pleasure. Right. Such a pleasure to talk to you. And I know a lot of people have learned so much. Thanks again. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for joining me today. Once again, I'm Dr. Andrea Bonnier, and this has been Baggage Check, with new episodes every Tuesday and Friday. Join us on Instagram at Baggage Check Podcast. Give us your take and opinions on topics and guests. And you know you've got that friend who listens to like 17 podcasts. We'd love it if you told them where to find us. Our original music is by Jordan Cooper, cover art by Daniel Merity, and my studio security, it's Buster the Dog. Until next time. Take good care.